This is Guns and Butter. talking about, you know, enough money to buy and control the planet. And so I think the time has come to ask the question, what is the black budget? Who is it financing? Where's the money really going? And what are we going to do about this? I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Catherine Austin Fitz. Today's show, Unpacking Mr. Global, Part 2. Catherine Austin Fitz has been an investment banker, a government official, an entrepreneur, and an investment advisor. She was a managing director and member of the board of Wall Street firm Dillon Reed and Company, Incorporated, Assistant Secretary of Housing and Federal Housing Commissioner in the first Bush administration, President of the Hamilton Securities Group, investment bank and financial software developer, and is currently managing member of Solari Investment Advisory Services and C-Lane Advisory. Catherine's experiences on Wall Street and in Washington, D.C. are chronicled in Dylan Reed and the Aristocracy of Stock Profits. Catherine Austin Fitz, welcome. It's great to be back, Bonnie. Well, what did you want to finish up saying about collateral fraud? What I discovered, because I went around the world, you know, I spoke in London to investment managers, I spoke in New Zealand, I spoke in Sweden, I spoke all around the world. And I tried to warn people that the fraud was this significant. And they literally couldn't fathom it. They they literally couldn't fathom it. And the first time I saw somebody fathom it was, and I've written one of my most popular blog posts, is called Financial Coup d'Etat. If you do a search for my name in Financial Coup d'Etat, you'll pull it up. And I wrote it about a time I was in London, and there were three speakers who went right in a row. John Laughlin, who's a marvelous uh, journalist in Europe, um, told the story of the privatization in Eastern Europe in the 90s. And then Anne Williamson, who'd reported for the Wall Street Journal in Russia, told the story of the privatization and the rape of Russia in the 90s. And then I presented a paper called The Myth of the Rule of Law, talking about the privatization in the United States during the 90s. And we were all in a state of shock because what we realized was we were talking about the same banks, the same law firms, the same investors, and they were doing it everywhere. It was one model, and it was happening globally, and it was a financial coup d'etat. It was amazing. And that was one of the few times that I saw a group of investors get it and realize, you know, something, we've got to take this into account for purposes of our strategy because this is really happening, and it's a global movement, and it's coming top down. With regard to the collateral fraud, how many people would have had to be involved in this? I mean, actually on the ground, buying and churning these houses. You know, it's funny how few people need to be involved, um, particularly when you're hiding behind the federal credit. So if you've got control in the right places at Fannie, Freddie, and FHA, particularly through the systems, it's a surprisingly few people. What you do need is you need for for everybody in 3,100 counties involved in real estate to just shut up. So, for example, um, you saw appraisers who knew that the appraisals were just, you know, going out of control and made no sense. Right. And if you had appraiser who wouldn't play ball, he'd kind of be dealt with. 
So you had this sort of 5 to 10% who objected to the corruption and would try and do something and would be dealt with in a variety of ways. Um, but what you needed was for everybody else to just play along and not ask questions. Right, because they were making money. Right. So what did they care? Right. And so, so literally, you know, sort of the corruption of the housing bubble, it was essential that all the local realtors, home builders, attorneys go along with the corruption for a piece of the action, which most of them were willing to do. Now, I understood your example of the drug dealer laundering money. Mm-hmm. and then a defaulting on the loan, but making money, flipping the house, Right, now he wasn't defaulting. The straw buyer was defaulting. Well, pardon me, that's right. right. The straw buyer was defaulting. But how many of those kinds of people would have to be involved in this? None. None. Oh, well, y- you know, you have people playing these default games right. on the mortgage. But for the fraudulent mortgages, you know, you could do the fraudulent mortgage with almost no one knowing especially right. once you get the MERS system going, because then you don't have to deal with the local courthouse. Right. So so if I'm sitting in Dubai and I'm buying $100 million of Fannie or Freddie um, securities, I, I don't care if the houses are real or not because I'm looking to Fannie or I'm looking to actually it would be Ginny Mae. So if I have a Ginny Mae, I've got the full faith and credit of the American government. What do I care if the houses are real or not? Exactly. Right. Exactly. So so you need the big servicers to be handling the, the mechanics of it. So you absolutely need J.P. Morgan Chase and Citibank, you know, going along and engineering the heart of it. Um, but well, how many straw men would you need to be buying these houses? Well, to do to do a simple collateral fraud, you wouldn't need any straw buyers because you could just sell for every time you do a predatory loan, you just create ten more mortgages and don't tell you know. I see. Which you mean you just make it up? Yeah, I see. Let's go back to that story. Remember when I said you know I was looking at the foreclosure list? It said I had ten houses on this lot, and I get there and there's there are no houses. You know, what's that about? It was really funny. When I when I became the FHA commissioner, we were the number one property disposition operation in, in Washington and in the country. And then um, uh, then the RTC, the Resolution Trust Corporation, was created to resolve the SNL crisis uh, yes. portfolios. And they put a wonderful guy in charge of all the property disposition. And he and I used to compare notes all the time. And that's what he'd say. He'd say, you know, we have 20 properties on this block. And then we go there and there's nothing there. My God. Well, I'm telling you, the fraud, the black budget fraud in the 80s was the precursor to the black budget fraud in the 90s. The only thing that happened in the 90s was if you look at all the models they created, they created them, you know, I mean, some of these models are very, very old, and I can take you back to my neighborhood. That's what got me involved in this in the first place. Um, but but you saw the models that they sort of developed and honed in the 80s. All they did in the 90s was add the stock market and derivatives, which gave it so much more power. And you were saying to me um, uh, before we sat down that in the 21st century, they weren't marking to market, so they right. couldn't be cleaned up. Right, and here's the problem. I think the collateral fraud was so significant they marked to market and they let the market clear in 89, 90, 91. They haven't been able to do that. Um, it's interesting. One of the things that uh, happens, Bonnie, when you have uh, an emergency in a county, there are all sorts of rules that sort of switch and allow you to pump money out of the government mortgage funds into that county in an emergency. Well, 90% of the counties in this country have had emergencies so far this year. 
And that's what I say is a covert QE3. I think they're they're creating or using emergencies to pump huge amounts of money to clean up this collateral fraud. So I think there's all sorts of stuff going on, you know, behind the scenes is my guess. But I think the reason they're having to do that is the collateral fraud is so much you can't mark to market because here's the problem in 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 both the RTC loan sales and then the FHA loan sales that Hamilton Securities helped engineer for HUD, you would see people bid above the market and you'd think, what was that? And then you'd realize, oh, they can't afford for those files to get out. So they're willing to pay, you know, they're willing to pay a dollar for the mortgage and another 50 cents to make sure the criminal liabilities don't get created, you know, they buy back in. And I think I think this time around, the criminal liabilities in those files were so enormous that they couldn't let the files get out in the market. They had to control them. And whether it was the Fed buying them or these games with the QE, QE this and QE that or covert QE three, if I'm right about that, I think what they're trying to do is they're trying to buy in those criminal liabilities. Wow. Well, is there any end in sight? Where is this all going to end? Well, here's the question. And and it, it really does go back to the end of World War II. We've had for decades, we've been financing what I call a black budget. Right. So we've seen trillions of dollars in tax money or federal credit being harvested, pulled out and pulled out and pulled out. So we're all getting up every day. We're going to work and, and we're getting drained. Mm-hmm. So there's a debasement machine, but the debasement is far more than just monetary policy. The debasement is this enormous amounts of money being clawed out of the government and clawed out of society. You know, it's the cost of organized crime. It's the cost of financial fraud. The question is, where's that money going? Exactly. Where's that money going, number one? And and how do we make sure that the investment of that money adheres to the greater good of the whole? Because that money is is going someplace. And I assure you, it is not going to Ferraris and offshore bank accounts because we're talking about much too much money. We're talking about the kind of money that builds, you know, private space programs. We're talking about the kind of money that builds corporate armies. We're talking about, we're talking about enough money to endow a private government. So, so you've put enough money into an endowment that's generating $2 trillion a year in dividends and interest, which can fund you know, the equivalent of a private U.S. government and private armies and private this and private that. So so we're talking about, you know, enough money to buy and control the planet. And so I think the time has come to ask the question, what is the black budget? Who is it financing? Where's the money really going? And what are we going to do about this? Exactly. That's exactly the right. question. Right. So and I think the the biggest problem is – Starting at the end of World War II, we created a financial mechanism through the CIA Act and the National Security Act uh, in combination and then with a variety of executive directives um, that allowed private corporations to be the beneficiary of that money. So you created – between those steps, you created a financial mechanism where government could borrow money and use that money – to give money to private corporations on a non-accountable basis to own and control the most dazzling, newest, hottest technology on the planet. And government and elected representatives lost control of the technology. And, you know, as frustrated as we can sometimes get with Congress or the federal government 
The reality is the federal government and Congress do not control that technology. We now have private corporations in control of that technology, and we have what I call a breakaway civilization. We have a group of people who have so much money and so much power and literally don't feel under any compunction to obey the laws of the Constitution or any other laws for that matter. And what kind of technology are we talking about? Well, that's the question. We can only speculate. But I think we have uh, the technology to control the weather or influence the weather. I think we have technology that can trigger earthquakes and tsunamis. I think we have invisible weaponry, um, certainly, that can uh, basically invade any and all privacy. And, uh, you know, we have computer systems that can hack banks and on and on and on. We have very, very powerful technology. Yes. And I'm sure they're rolling a lot of it out in in these wars that we're not even aware of. Right. Well, I'll, I'll never forget. I have a uh, a wonderful friend who wanted to buy a world bond fund. And as many years ago, and uh, they asked me to do a search, and I looked and I looked and I looked. Finally, I found two that I could kind of stomach. And um, at the time, I wasn't, I wasn't big on world bond funds. But uh, uh, so they bought them, and one of them had 15% of the money in Indonesian sovereign debt. And they bought them and then about a week after they bought them, the one with the Indonesian sovereign debt dropped by 15% overnight. Massive insider trading. The market's calm. Interest rates are the same. There's no reason. Nothing. And we call the sponsor and we're trying to ask questions and we're, you know, like, what is going on? I couldn't fathom it. It was like the strangest thing I'd ever seen. A week later, the Indonesian tsunami happened. And I realized they knew. They knew it was coming. They knew. How'd they know? And and it's funny because I'm a very happy person. I literally lay down and thought for a week. I thought, how do you manage money in a world where people know that a tsunami is going to happen a week later and keep it to themselves and just trade on the inside information? Unbelievable. How do you manage money in that world? And a, a sovereign debt fund doesn't drop like that. 15% overnight with no change in the market or no change in interest rates? Exactly. Didn't make any sense. Exactly. Right. I'm speaking with entrepreneur and investment advisor Catherine Austin Fitz. Today's show, Unpacking Mr. Global, Part Two. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Catherine, you have said that it took twelve trillion dollars to finance everything since the beginning of the country up until a few years ago. Then another $12 trillion was given to the banks, which refinanced out all of the toxic paper and derivatives of the last 15 years, let's say. You have said that $12 trillion financed a leverage buyout of the country and the planet. You have described this as a financial coup d'etat. Could you elaborate on that? Sure. Um, one of the reasons I describe the $12 trillion is the equivalent of, of all the money we had borrowed, and I should specify, on the books. <laughs> it doesn't include the collateral fraud, but but all the money we had borrowed since the, you know, the beginning of the country is to help people understand the, the magnitude, the size of the bailouts, because you're literally saying we need to to lend or give to the banks the equivalent of everything we've borrowed since, you know, World War I, World War II, the Korea War, the interstate highway system, everything. I mean, it's such a, it's such a phenomenal amount of money. You just don't even know how to, 
how to express it in a way that really communicates the extent of it. And, um, you know, so it, it was such an extraordinary amount of money. Now, as I said before, um, at that time, $8 trillion would have extinguished all the residential mortgages in the country. So so that's more money than 100 percent of the mortgages in the United States. So the question is, what's that about? Right. And I think what happened was we saw a global origination of massive amounts of debt on a fraudulent basis and that cash used to literally buy up a variety of positions, including, you know, control of the White House and the Congress. And so, um, so you know, phony baloney debt issued, the money used to buy control in a variety of ways. And then once control was had, the market is crashed and you use the cash of what you now control to pay off the phony baloney paper. That's a leveraged buyout. <laughs> you know, you buy something with massive debt and then you use the cash of the target to pay back the massive debt. Right. So we literally watched a leveraged buyout of the United States and sovereign government. And what I would say, looking at this from the very long-term view, is debt is being used to re-engineer governance systems. You know, so let's create a character for a second. Let's say there's one person who runs the planet who I call Mr. Global. Mr. Global said, you know, this sovereign government thing isn't working, you know, so I think I want to re-engineer governance. And what we're going to do is we'll, we'll basically get control of all the governments by getting them completely indebted and in over their head. We We have the invasive technology so they can never have a private conversation. So they don't have financial sovereignty. They don't have information sovereignty. And then we can basically dictate terms. So you're literally watching the end of democracy through the financial mechanism because the creditors are telling a government what it will and will not do and what it can and cannot do. You know, they basically have the government over the barrel and they're using debt to do it. Right. Right. Exactly. Uh, describe the Uruguay round of GATT. You've talked about this before, the General Agreement on Trade and Tariffs of the early 90s. What was this agreement and what have been the results? Right. It, the Uruguay round, uh, one way to look at what's happening at the economy is that we really made a decision in terms of the freedom and and the way we operate global trade um, when when the Uruguay Round passed in 1995, we created the World Trade Organization and, and then began, Bonnie, a whole new round of globalization that allowed us to move capital and manufacturing globally in a whole new way. It made everything much more fluid. And what it did was it put us in a world where ultimately there was no reason why an hour of labor in North America should be any different than an hour of labor in Europe should be any different than an hour of labor in Brazil should be any different than an hour of labor in China. Right. So so we went into what's being called the rebalancing of the global economy. Now, let me explain the power of what that did. What that gave was it gave the central banks the ability to offset liberal monetary policy with labor deflation. So if I print lots and lots of money, normally I'll kick up inflation. But if I can drop the value of labor consistently, 
the more I print money, I have monetary something that should lead to inflation, but by dropping and squeezing labor, I can offset and not get the same kickstart in inflation. Does that make any sense? Well, are you talking, are you trying to say that people's buying power goes down so that inflation doesn't kick in? Uh, think of it this way. If if I'm making cars, yeah. a part of my cost is the cost of capital, right? and a part of my cost is the cost of labor. Right. Okay. If I can use this kind of globalization to dramatically lower my cost of labor, then I can print lots and lots of money and lots of lots of debt and debase the currency without kicking up the cost of the car because I'm dropping – Oh, I see. Without kicking up the – yeah, the cost of the car. Okay. Uh -huh. So so I continually squeeze I – keep, I keep – by deflating labor, I can prevent inflation from happening. And so what we did was we entered into a shift of capital and a shift of economic activities that was very profound and was was guaranteed, if you didn't do something to intervene, was guaranteed to significantly lower the the standard of living in the first world countries. Now, what was interesting about it was that one of the things that happened in that process is the baby boomer generation has created enormous amounts of pools of capital. So they've worked and they've saved and they put their money in pension funds and they put their money in IRAs and they put their 401ks. Part of this rebalancing was taking that capital and reinvesting it abroad to help facilitate the shift. So literally you had the baby boomers – you know, aging, 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 and before they could retire to to ask for that capital back, you pulled it out and reinvested it abroad. And in fact, to the extent that that transfer was illegal, you took it permanently. So there's $4 trillion missing from the federal government during that period. It's the so-called missing money. You know, that money's gone it got reinvested somewhere, you know, maybe it was in Latin America, maybe it was Asia, maybe it was space, who knows, um, you know, but it's no longer owned by the government and the people here. So so you literally saw a whole generation watch their capital get moved and they didn't notice because they were enjoying the bubble, okay? And now that the bubble's over, we're all sitting here looking and suddenly the question is, okay, well, what's going to finance our retirement? And because if, you know, whether it's the pension funds, whether it's the 401ks and IRAs, whether it's the home that we thought was going up in value, all of the assets that we thought were standing behind our retirement are suddenly not looking as healthy as they once did. And I think the big question for many people here is, okay, uh, you know, what's the end game on this? Well, now, exactly. Now, what is in people's pension funds if the real assets have been moved out? Well, I'll give you an example because I think the pension funds are a mixed bag and it, it changes pension fund to pension fund. But pension funds own the, – the biggest financier of the federal government is not China, is not Saudi Arabia. It's the pension funds. So as we were shifting money out of the country and moving jobs abroad – the pension funds were buying U.S. government debt 
and were buying mortgage-backed securities. I see. So the pension funds played a major role in financing the bubble that kept everything going while the money was shifted out, which means now, let's say, let's say all the kids in America and all the, all the homeowners said, you know something? This was all a scam. We're going to default on all the student loan debt. We're going to, you know, we're just going to walk away. We're going to walk away from the mortgages. We're going to walk away from the student loans. A lot of that would hit American pension funds because they're holding a big, you know, we just sold the mortgages to ourselves. Right, because the government bailed out the banks, so they have the money, and they bought the toxic waste, so that's what the government has, right? Well, the pension funds own a lot of, you know, whether it's the government paper or the mortgage-backed securities. Right. The pension funds have big, big positions in this stuff, and that's why the player who has the most to gain from a return to fundamental productivity at a county level are the pension funds because they're sitting with so much of this consumer and government paper. And, um, you know, if there's anybody who can benefit from a reengineering of federal investment by county and by place, it's the pension funds. Well, this sounds like a good time uh, to talk about your experience with CalPERS. Uh, <laughs> In, in the spring of uh, 1997. Now, you had a meeting with them, right? This is actually, this is a very important story. I had a meeting when I started Hamilton. I said, I want to find real solutions. I want to find a model for how we can invest our capital so that private investors acting in their own interest will finance an economy which is optimized across the board. Does that make any sense? Mm-hmm. Um, let me let me describe it this way: an investment has a return to the investor, but it also has a return to the network, and the combination is what I call a total economic return. So, if I, as an investor, um, finance the building of a convention center by a local government in a community, then I get a return to investor. But if it's successful, the community is better off and benefits. So that, that's the return to the network, and so. Um, you know, my model is to always understand the total economic return and the return to network and use that knowledge to find opportunities for improving the return to the investor. So what I'm saying is understand your impact on the ecosystem and look for ways of adding value to the ecosystem to enhance your own returns. Play win-win. Okay. And subject to one rule, if if anything you're doing has a negative return on the total economic return, don't do it, even if it makes you money. So when somebody comes to me and say, I want you to buy Monsanto, you can get a double. I say no. Right. No. Whether it's spiritual or financial, it's funny. You know, I always say to people, look, you lost everything in Enron and I still have the Hickory Valley meat market. <laughs> and it's amazing how how many mistakes you avoid by following this simple rule. I'm speaking with entrepreneur and investment advisor, Catherine Austin Fitz. Today's show, Unpacking Mr. Global, Part 2. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Anyway, so my company had a subsidiary that had a board of wonderful pension fund, uh, leaders in the pension fund industry, and they were helping me figure out this model. The question was, how could we manage our funds... Um, so that we get an optimization of the whole in a way that makes us more money. And it's the absolutely appropriate question for pension funds to ask. 
Anyway, so I, uh, you know, we worked and worked. And finally, after much research, and we created Relational Databases Community Wizard that would let us look at all the government investment, private investment by county, by place. One of the things I discovered, Bonnie, was that if we just said, okay, we're going to forget about fees for our friends and we're going to re-optimize government investment to make the pie as big as possible, forget who gets it, just to make the pie as big as possible, there's unbelievable wealth. What we discovered was the whole economy is so profoundly suboptimized because rather than government playing the clean enforcer, government is intervening in a way that makes uh, the optimization shrink. You know, tyranny is unbelievably bad for business. That's <laughs> what it says. Anyway, so so um, I took our results and we used the Philadelphia area. I grew up in Philadelphia. We used the greater Philadelphia area and we did a sources and uses of government money using Community Wizard in Philadelphia. And what we showed was that the government investment in Philadelphia was slowly innervating and harming the economy because whether it was, it was people at the very top of society or people at the very bottom of society, we were basically paying people to do things that made them stupider. Mm -hmm. So prisons. I mean – Paying some people to learn how to sit around and watch other people and other people to sit there and do almost nothing, you know, it's hugely wasting of human talent. Okay, so we made the presentation and then we showed if you re-engineer the government investment, um, but in a model where equity investors were investing in these community venture funds and investing in place, you can make a huge amount of money, including for the pension funds. So it was perfect. And um, it's funny, one of the guys who was a corporate pension leader from New England, he said, this is great. He said, we can save the country and make lots of money. <laughs> it was great. And the head of CalPERS is a wonderful man. I'll never forget it. Um, he had worked for Saul Linsky as a young man. And he said, this is Saul's model. He said, but they were able to stop him. Well, he was right and I was wrong. I said, I said Saul Alinsky did not have the internet. You know, the learning speeds can go so much higher now, and it's much harder. Well, of course, he was right and I was wrong. So he, he froze, and he said, you don't understand. It's too late. I said, what do you mean it's too late? He said, he said they've made a decision to move all the money out of the country starting this fall. That was spring of 1997, and that fall was October 1998, the beginning of the 99 fiscal year, when all the $4 trillion started to go missing from the federal government. So uh, he said it's too – he said you've got to get to Nick Brady who had been the chairman – who had been the secretary of treasury in the Bush administration but chairman of my firm on Wall Street. And he said you've got to tell them it's not hopeless. They they think it's hopeless. They've given up. And um, – They meaning whom? Well, that's the $64,000 right. question. Yeah. If you've ever seen the movie Captains and Kings, there was a TV series and it was sort of a fictional version of the Kennedy – John Kennedy story. And uh, and it describes this group of uh, global magnets who are Mr. Global, the committee Mr. Global running the world. Okay. And uh, so I presume when he said they, he meant them. Sure. <laughs> so um, anyway, so so here's what was so interesting. Then when the housing bubble took off and I saw what was happening, you know, I realized that CalPERS was financing – the government debt and the mortgage-backed securities to finance this bubble while they're sucking huge amounts of money out of the country. Now, if you're CalPERS and you know they're moving all the money out of the country, well, that's not a sound investment. So that's in violation 
to me, of the laws. And so you ask the question, well, is CalPERS following the law? Is CalPERS acting in the best interest of the beneficiary? Or is CalPERS being told by they what they have to do upon pain of death? So my interpretation is CalPERS doesn't have the control they need internally to follow the best interests of the beneficiaries. They're being, you know, they're being told what to do from above. And, of course, if that's happening to CalPERS, it's happening in other pension funds. Right. CalPERS is the biggest pension fund in the country. So if it's happening to CalPERS, it's happening to everyone. And that was, wow, over 10 years ago. That was April of 1997. Now, in fairness to, you know, to CalPERS, if you believe you're part of a centrally managed model and the model's going to go to the right, then you've got to go to the right. And I'll tell you what was very interesting. When I spoke in Europe and Asia and the United States about the housing bubble and warned people of the collateral fraud, you know, one, I think they couldn't fathom that it was as bad as I was saying. But two, you know, they were kind of stuck in this model where, you know, the central banks are going to make good. So I don't need to worry that it's trading sardines because I'm never going to eat the sardines. I'm just going to trade them to the next guy. And 2008 was a profound wake-up call because 2008 said, you know something? They're not going to keep, you know, they're, they're not going to, if you buy trading sardines at 100, you know, they might be worth zero. They're not going to mm-hmm. guarantee your price on the, they're not going to guarantee you a good exit. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was the wake-up call that everybody got that, wait a minute, you know, suddenly the line of who's an insider and outsider can be moved dramatically quickly. And what do you think of the crash in September 2008? Was that was that managed? Was that uh you know, I mean, we hear stories about the, you know, the 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 threats that Paulson made against Congress when they first voted down the the bailout, the bank bailout. So what about the crash? Do you think Somebody that- somebody was blackmailing. You know, somebody was blackmailing and frankly, I, you know, every 5 minutes I would call my congressman's office and say you may not vote for this because my attitude was fine. Let it all crash. You know, here's the thing. If you look at a corporate stock, um, if a corporation makes a dollar and its stock goes up $20 if it's trading at a multiple of 20 times. Mm-hmm. And that multiple from 1 to 20 comes about because the market believes in the rule of law. Without the rule of law, 1 equals 1. The whole thing crashes down. And and so my attitude is, hey, let it crash because if there's no rule of law, then nothing has any value other than what I can protect with a gun. So so let it crash because we need the breakaway civilization to stop being able to blackmail us. So, you know, we have a lot of land. We have a lot of resources. We have each other. And I frankly would rather live free. You know, death is not the worst thing that can happen here. It really is not, you know, and I've, I've personally gone through this. And the reason I'm alive here today is because many times I said, fine, kill me. I am not, <laughs> I'm not doing that because death is not the worst thing that can happen. So particularly because we're talking about a culture, uh, you know, a centralizing culture, which can be phenomenally perverting. I mean, phenomenally perverting. So, so I think, you know, to me, the bailout was a blackmail and I think, I would have pushed the red button, so to speak. Uh, I would have said no to the blackmailers. And because I think the rule of law is more important. And um, now I can understand why somebody sitting in a politician's chair would have let himself be blackmailed. But I like to take my pain early. So 
Um, but I think I think that was a political situation, not a financial situation. Right. And they did indeed start to crash the market, right? And that's when they got their bailout. Right. Right. Because I remember the the major bank stocks went down to penny stocks, didn't they? Right. But I don't th- I don't think the problem if you if you look at what happened, Congress voted against it the first time. Right. And and the market didn't crash. For for there there was one bright That's shining right. moment when everybody felt good, like, oh, you know, because I think, right. right. And, and then they came back and lobbied hard. And I think here's, here's the, the core of the issue. I think we're talking about people who have the ability to kill with impunity. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so when they come into Congress to lobby, you know, they've got your control file, they've got your dirty pictures. When I was in Washington, you know, the fear always is if if they've got dirty pictures on you, you've got to do what they say. If they don't have dirty pictures, then it's a 10-year litigation to prove that the dirty pictures they have are, are phony baloney. They've got nothing. But it, it literally took me 10 years and $6 million to prove that their, you know, that their hand was empty. So most people are not prepared to go through <laughs> a 10-year, $6 million, you know, proof to do it. And and the reality is I'm lucky to be alive. Boy, I can say that again. I, I still can't believe that you did that for 10 years. I had to bring a lawsuit once and it was just horrible. Well, here's the thing. I, you know, I have a, you know, and it's not something I'm recommending to anybody to do. I had, uh, you know, one of my prayers when it was happening was, please don't let this be about old family business. Please don't let this be about old family business. And the further along I got, the more I realized this is probably connected to old family business. So one of the reasons I kind of got stuck into it is my parents had problems with the same cast of characters. And and after watching what happened to them, you know, and then having it happen to me, I just said, you know something? We we just have to fight. You know, there's sometimes you just have to hold the line and you have to fight. So this was this was more than just a business or a you know this really had to do with the fundamental criminality of society and it's you know it's a longer story I ended up it's funny when uh, we had a very dirty moment in court and I popped out an article about my mother's um my mother's death I believe my mother's murdered and uh, I popped out a little article about my mother's murder, and something ha- very dirty happened about six weeks ago, and I started to write the story of my father's death. <laughs> so those are I wrote a book. Um, I wrote a book review on Dick Cheney's uh, new book. It's called Dick Cheney's Fluff or Nutter. If you do a search, it'll link to the it'll link to the article about my mother's death, so you can get a taste of it. And one of the things I said in it, I wrote it at the time when I was helping with the nine eleven Truth Group. One of the things I said in it is, you know, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people who have lost family and loved ones to the black budget. It's not just the families of 9-11. If you look at at the drugs, if you look at, you know, the nuclear testing, if you look at all the different things that the black budget folks in this breakaway uh, civilization have done – you know, we're talking about thousands and thousands of people at all classes and all levels across America – but we're not a we yet because we keep thinking, oh, it's drugs or we keep thinking it's, you know, nuclear testing or this or that. And it's not. It's it's that you have a force in our society which is above the law and we are all grappling with the cost of that and we need to step back and look at it and not get caught in our little 
you know, our little boxes, but say, wait a minute, you know, we have a bunch of people running around who think they can kill with impunity. Yes. And we need to deal with that because it's, it's you know, that's our economic problem. I'm speaking with entrepreneur and investment advisor, Catherine Austin Fitz. Today's show, Unpacking Mr. Global, Part 2. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Well, so that's interesting. So there was, as you phrase it, old family business, like your parents had had had, to deal with this type of thing. And it's funny because the way I got started on all of this, I grew up in 48th and Larchwood in West Philadelphia. You're from California, so you probably have never been. It was one of those little row house, you know, lots of row houses financed with V8 housing in Philadelphia. My father was a surgeon. He wanted to be near the hospital. And um, and there were four HUD fraud deals up Caddy Corner to our – and he bought the house for $12,000. So figure he had like maybe two or 3000 of equity in it, which in those days was a lot of money. And um, – and there were these four phony baloney HUD fraud deals, just of the kind I just described to you. And it was catty corner. And Bonnie, it wiped out the equity. You know, any house contiguous to that. Right. It wiped out our equity. Yes. And now, and those those houses sat empty for four years. I'll never forget it when I was a, in my early, you know, say when I was about 10 to 14. And so we have these four boarded up homes and they had this big sign on the front by order of the Assistant Secretary of Housing, Federal Housing Commissioner, one of the longest titles in the federal government. Meantime, across from me is a family of six people living in a one-bedroom apartment while these four houses are empty. And I thought, you know, this doesn't make any sense because if you look at the amount of money they made on the fraud, it's a lot less than all the equity wiped out by all these people. And then you got these people who would love to take care of one of those homes in this, you know, stupid one-bedroom apartment. So the whole thing was what, you know, a financial person would call an enormous suboptimization. And that's part of what got me interested in, okay, why can't the honest people make more money making a place, you know, making the Popsicle Index go up instead of it going down? And it was funny because I was, I'll never forget, um, you know, so I would I would walk by this boarded up house at least once a week. And I used to always think, who is that person, this Assistant Secretary of Housing, this horrible person? And when I got sworn in, I was, you know, a friend of mine was holding the Bible and the secretary said, by order of the president, you are now the Assistant Secretary of Housing, Federal Housing Administration. I said, oh, no, I'm the A, you know what? Oh, my God. And I, I went right downstairs and I called in the single family deputy. I said, how many foreclosed properties do we have in America? He said, 50,000. I said, I want that 25,000 in a year. Well, of course, that's the first thing I ever did that really irritated the black budget guys because they were playing games on that inventory. So, What a story. <laughs> <I know>. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, but here's the thing. All the fraud on the planet can be brought down and expressed in the intimate financial flows in our life. That's one of the reasons I say we're all powerful. I was sitting – I had a, a checking account at J.P. Morgan Private Banking. You know, now it's J.P. Morgan Chase, then it was J.P. Morgan. And they were one of the lead banks at HUD. And so when the litigation started, it was very ugly and dangerous, and there was all sorts of physical harassment. I was writing a check, and I realized, why am I banking at one of the banks that somehow must be connected to the people who are trying to kill me? Why am I doing this? <laughs> I said, I need to come clean. I need to clean up my own. And and so the thing that's powerful is if we all come to see – our investment, not as something we do over here, but something that is connected to all the different flows. I'm 
swimming in the ecosystem, whether it's financial or it's material. And, and everything I do, everything I use, everything I think, participate in, invest in, you know, I, I'm, I'm influencing, I'm choosing, I'm acting. And if every one of us can say, uh, well, wait a minute, you know, I'm going to try and shift what I do and how I do it so that I'm interacting with my ecosystem in a way which for me is net energy plus. And I'm, I do my best to not contribute to these things. So, you know, I got out of J.P. Morgan Chase and got into what is arguably the most wonderful, righteous ethical community bank I've ever heard of. And, you know, it's something, it's a pleasure doing business in a bank you really love. I mean, can you imagine banking in a bank where you love your bankers? <laughs> it's wonderful. You know, it's really wonderful. But, um, it, and it's powerful if we all choose. But but a lot of that, you know, we're, we're trained to think of, of investment and the financial system as something over there and not part of my life. And we're also to think of our participation in the financial system as not having an influence. You know, somebody will say, well, my checking account's really small. It doesn't count. Wrong. In an economy this centralized, layered up with derivatives, one account is really powerful because it's levered many times upstairs. So, you know, what you do and what you think and how you do it is important. Catherine, could you explain the significance and effect of three defense contractors controlling databases? What are the three defense contractors, and do they control all databases? If you look, there are several websites that track uh, contracting for the federal government, and what you'll see is the information technology contracts are very consolidated into a relatively small number of firms. So, for example, when I was Assistant Secretary of Housing, um, Lockheed Martin got $150 million a year to manage both the IT and the payment systems at HUD. Um, I believe Lockheed Martin is still the number one contractor of IT and, uh, and payment systems at the Department of Defense, which is a real conflict of interest because it means – the company that's sending bills for weapons and weapon systems is the company then paying those bills. <laughs> now, I mention that because over $3.4 trillion is missing from the Department of Defense, which meant if it's missing, then Lockheed, you know, whoever's running the payment systems and, and is doing the depository banking, which is the New York Fed, <laughs> is responsible. For many years when the General Accounting Office would come back and say the federal government has refused to produce audited financial statements as required by laws, I had one friend who was a reporter who would constantly say, which contractors were running those payment systems? And they would never answer the question. They were too afraid. <laughs> so when you were at HUD, you would try and get information from Lockheed? When, and- I was, when I was at HUD, both as Assistant Secretary, but even more so when we were the financial advisor, we were responsible for portfolio strategy. And of course, the, the power of portfolio strategy is when you have very rich relational databases that can look at your portfolio, both by function and type of mortgage, but by place, because all real estate is local, right? And I would, I would try and get the data from Lockheed Martin. They just wouldn't give it to us. They just wouldn't. I mean, it was a war. Was, we used to call it the data beast. <laughs> and I eventually wrote an article about the data beast. But the, the reality was, you know, you had Lockheed Martin and their subcontractors owning and controlling that data, and you couldn't get it. It was unbelievable. <laughs> but there are also these contractors 
are also running other databases, right? I mean, how does this affect, let's say, the health care bill? What I believe is if you if you were to look at the federal government, I wrote this in an article called The Data Beast. If you were to look at, at 21 federal agencies, not as government agencies, but as databases, and you said, okay, which contractors, you know, have access to what data, you would see a very different map. So, for example, on the census... On the census, the lead contractor on the, this latest census was IBM. So you have IBM and its subcontractors putting together very, very rich databases of every house in the whole country. And if you look at, at all the other databases that IBM and their subcontractors have access to government-wide, the question is, if you integrate those databases, what you're talking about is a complete control system. Because you've got the mortgages, you've got the IRS payments, you've got on and on and on and on and on. So if you watch the movie Enemy of the State or you watch the movie Listening, you're, you're talking about an intelligence capacity that can, uh, you know, that can basically manage and manipulate the economy at a very detailed level, whether it's manipulation of the stock in the financial markets or manipulation of households. Oh, and and that's so scary because they have all the information on you. Well, IBM is one of the leaders in the software for the smart meters. So if you take the database they put together on the census and you add the data they're going to create from these smart meters. And you're talking about your utilities. Yeah. Yeah. But, but if you look at the smart meters, my understanding on the smart meters is they're collecting that data and sending it back, you know, on a wireless basis, which means it's easy to hack into. Sure. So there's no reason. <laughs> so the question is, you know, who has that data? But you're talking about real-time data from the banking systems, from the mortgage system, from the housing systems, all coming in and being used in a variety of ways, which are very invasive. And the reality is, is if I... You know, Nicholas Negropano once said that data about money was worth more than money. If I have real-time data on all of your activities and transactions, you know, 24-7, you know, then ultimately I can own you, particularly if I can print money, you know, whenever I want to. So we're talking about a complete control system. And the scary thing about it, I would really encourage people to read my article, The Data Beast, um, because one of the things I point out was IBM was the company that built the infrastructure that made the Holocaust possible. Oh, that's right. Right. So if if you look, if you go back and you read Edwin Black's book about literally how the Holocaust was made feasible by advanced database technology, um, and IBM really built it and managed it from from what I understand of his book, um, you know, you're basically having that same company build the ultimate databases today. And and the government is paying them to do it. Do you think that there will be a move on to do away with cash? With Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it seems like it to me, too. Sure, because if you can, um, you know, go back to this data system and the value of data, if, if somebody does things with a credit card or a debit card or something that goes through... You know, if people are transacting with cash, then I don't have that data. That's right. Right. I can't control that. We just saw – I just posted an article up on the blog. Louisiana is outlawing cash um, for secondhand transactions and barter 
which I'm not clear how they can do it since it's legal tender. I don't know if that's constitutional. But anyway, that's what's reported from Louisiana. But um, Yes, I, I, I heard about that, too. And I didn't it just I, I didn't know whether to believe it or not. Well, that's the question. I don't see how they could, because right now it's legal tender and you can't uh, you know, you can't refuse legal tender as a way of transacting. So what is really happening, I don't know. But we have seen, nor I have seen enormous efforts by the banks to not pay out cash or to make it very expensive for merchants to get change. So there's real, uh, I would say there's a real lockdown within the banking system to encourage only digital transactions and not cash transactions. Yeah, that's very creepy. Right. Well, the the you know part of it I think is you you get a lot more leverage uh, without the cash, um, and and having that control. But I think here's the funny thing: you have throughout society you have about I think John Rappaport breaks it down to nine cartels. You have the banking cartel, you have the energy cartel, you have the medical cartel, you have the government cartel, the agents, intelligence agents, you know, but a series of different cartels. And to a certain extent, they're competing with each other for power. And so one will do something invasive to control the data in their area and the others will follow, not because they're trying to necessarily hurt us, they're just trying to not get outpowered by the other cartel. So so you have them all competing, and as they all become more and more invasive, of course, what it does is it drains more and more value from the beast because nothing drains economic value out like the absence of privacy. And it goes back to, you know, how does tyranny destroy value? That's one of the ways. <laughs> and so, you know, you have this competition among all the players, and part of it is because the technology allows them to do it. So that's why one of the reasons we have to think very carefully about is, you know, how do we want to use technology? Because we can use technology to decentralize, but we can also use it to centralize in a way that's negative. And the more they try and control it, the worse the economy gets. And the more they try and control it, and it can't be controlled, and they're frustrated. And you see that frustration and and uh you know, so so I think one of the things that's got to happen here is it it takes more than force to run a planet. It takes more than force to govern a planet. It takes, you know, it takes uh, alignment of spirit. You know, it, the thing that makes a culture powerful is it's got some values higher than if you don't do this, I'll kill you. <laughs> So we have this group of people who have unbelievably powerful technology and, you know, they've developed a learning speed, which is much faster than the rest of us. And so we've got a huge non-alignment. And I think the question is, okay, how do we create a culture to govern this planet, which will adapt to this new technology and adapt to taking responsibility bottom up? You know, but doesn't force us into this high-tech, friendly fascism because fascism's not going to work. So that's the conundrum, and and it gets us back to the question about who in the world is they and why are they doing this? You know, to to a certain extent, often on my whole life, I've struggled to, to watch and deal with the covert side. And the hardest thing, I think, for me is having to live in a world where everybody wanted to pretend it really wasn't there. 
Right. You know, so if I just pretend it's not there, then it won't bother me. I can live over here in the bubble. And meantime, it's growing stronger and stronger and stronger. And to a certain extent, no matter how depressing the world is right now, I kind of feel like I'm welcoming every – welcome to my world, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because because it's not going to go away. It's going to get stronger and stronger. And the reality is we're all feeding the beast. We are all – you know, we all pay attention to it. We all honor it. We all want its money. We want its treats. Catherine, thank you. Thank you. I've been speaking with Catherine Austin Fitz. Today's show has been Unpacking Mr. Global, Part 2. Catherine Austin Fitz has been an investment banker, a government official, an entrepreneur, and an investment advisor. She was a managing director and member of the board of Wall Street firm Dylan Reed and Company, Incorporated, Assistant Secretary of Housing and Federal Housing Commissioner in the first Bush administration, President of the Hamilton Securities Group, investment bank and financial software developer, and is currently managing member of Solari Investment Advisory Services and C-Lane Advisory. Catherine's experiences on Wall Street and in Washington, D.C. are chronicled in Dylan Reed and the Aristocracy of Stock Profits. Visit her website at www.solari.com. That's S-O-L-A-R-I dot C-O-M. Guns and Butter is produced and edited by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. To make comments or order copies of shows, email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com. Visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.org. That's G-U-N-S-A-N-D-B-U-T-T-E-R dot O-R-G. Hey, yo! That we live in G And a new world order is about to begin You know what I'm saying? Now the question is Are you ready for the real revolution Which is the evolution of the mind If you seek, then you shall find That we all come from the divine You dig what I'm saying? Now if you take heed to the words of wisdom That are written on the walls of life Then universally we will stand And divided we will fall Because love conquers all Release. You dig me? You got me? <laughs>